Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are continuing our Steven Spielberg series with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Roy Neary, an electric lineman, watches how his quiet and ordinary daily life turns upside down after a close encounter with a UFO. Mm-hmm. Elaborate, if you will. This movie's too long. Oh, this movie suffers from mid-70s syndrome so badly. This is such a letdown after Jaws. Okay, so like the movie's not crap. Like I'm I'm going to say that right here. Like it's not crap. No. But this movie wanders around and spends a lot of time giving me stuff that does not fucking matter and nobody cares about. It takes too long to get to the point and I it's 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 just it's a lot of exposition for no payoff. It's a big question of is the story about Roy or is the story about the aliens? And I know the argument is, well, it's both. And that's true, but that's not what you're showing me on the screen. And it's it's so much exposition. You could easily cut 45 minutes out of this movie without even thinking. Eh, 30. I mean, here, here's my thing. I genuinely love the sense of awe and wonder that the movie produces, especially the last 30 minutes of this movie. But it's movie. only the last 30 minutes. It's only the last 30 minutes where you get awe and wonder. Because I'm watching this film, especially the beginning where you start to see, it's the scene in the truck that makes that ruins this film for me. Really? It really does. Because like, there's no fucking restraint at all in this scene. You just decided, let's throw every fucking thing in this scene. And it makes no sense. It does in the sense of those are reported phenomena from UFO abductions. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't care about reported phenomena from UFO abductions. I care about what are you telling me in this story? You should have picked two or three, and that's it. And it needed to be big enough. You should have done one or two subtle ones, and then one big one that Roy could not have ignored. And then that's it for that scene. Mm. Because that's the problem, is you threw literally everything, and you're just like, is this just a joke? Because that's what that scene becomes so quickly is a joke. The truck levitating in midair and... Between that and then the railroad sign just going willy-nilly. Because the thing is, there's no subtlety anywhere. There's nothing where it's like, there's no build up to it. It needs to start with, you know, oh, it's it's something moving. And you're like, oh, well, that could be wind. It has to start in a way that you're like, there has to be something reasonable that you could explain it away with. And then it has to build to a way that it's undeniable. And none of that happens. It's just ridiculous from the get-go. And that is where I'm just like, I don't give a fuck. I'm I'm so done with this. I was done at that moment. Interesting. Because I don't think that's the point. The point is that he's supposed to be communicated with. And then the rest of this movie is him trying to understand what that means. But. But No, I understand. I totally understand that. Him and the other lady they were communicated with and they're trying to understand what that means. Totally understand that concept. That is communicated well. It's communicated almost too much (laughs) because they double down and triple down and quadruple down on it so much. I'm just like, shut up and (laughs) just get to it already. But that whole scene is just, it's so bad. It's so bad. Wow. I I think it's horrible. I actually love it. (laughs) I think it's one of the better sequences in the movie. But I will, I, I do understand that the movie is muddled. It's not communicating its story that well. Mm-hmm. It does have a Kubrick rule impediment of mm-hmm. 
there's a lot going on in this story that requires you to have a base knowledge of UFOs and UFO abductions to get the references they're making. And I don't. Mm, wow. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. And then I also feel the same way about the mom in the house with the son. The only part where the only reason I don't hate that one as much is that that's how they abduct the son. Those are the scenes I really love in this movie. Of course. The scenes that I don't like as much are the the back and forth dialogue to the point that you make is because they keep bludgeoning us over the head with it. Mm -hmm. Like Spielberg didn't need to take hours upon hours to get this point across. Mm -hmm. And also, I would have rather spent some of that time that we have to spend with like Roy coming to reckon with all this stuff mm -hmm. with Truffaut and the scientists mm -hmm. who are fascinating. They are fascinating. Le and Lacombe like and the scientists are one of them are probably more interesting than Neary. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that Roy Neary's character isn't interesting, but if we didn't spend that much time with it, it wouldn't feel so bogged down. Like I, I understand that you want to have a human element of like this is this is the humans who like that these are the normal people who interacted with this and how they are affected by it. Totally makes sense. But it's too much. This it, movie is a ride more than it is a movie. Well, and it's funny you say that because when I was watching the truck scene, I was like, this is just them trying to make a roller coaster ride, but it's in a movie. <laughs> it is far more of just a visual ride and experience. That being said, my God, it looks amazing. <laughs> the end does. I think the whole thing does. I mean, the special effects are good. I'm, I'm not, yeah. I, I won't shit on that at all. And then I will say that the mashed potato scene. Okay, I have to say this. UHF is a film that I have seen 8 million times in my life. That is Weird Al's film. And there is a scene in that film where he is basically doing that with mashed potatoes. And I've always laughed at it because I just thought it was funny. Now I know where that's from. Uh -huh. And I'm watching it and like I could see it happen. I was like, oh my God, that's where that's from. <laughs> and I'm sure someone's told me that in my life. But to actually see it is pretty funny. It boils down to that there are a lot of really compelling elements in this movie. There are scenes in each of the different perspectives we get where it works really well. Like to me, that mashed potato scene mm -hmm. is maybe one of the best in Agreed. the movie. Agreed. Because I also like where it's like the family is just like, this is going too far. Well, I guess you've noticed something that's a little strange with dad. <laughs> It's okay, though. I'm still dead. I can't describe it. What I'm feeling. What I'm thinking. This means something. This is important. And even Roy has to admit Like, that. he has to be like, yeah, dad's, um, yeah, dad's not okay. I'm not okay. And I don't know what it is, but this is important for some reason. No, and I get, and I appreciate that. Yeah. That's fine. Like, having those little moments sprinkled throughout with the focus being on the, the scientist would have been slightly better. I mean, to me, maybe the best, the best one-two punch in the whole movie is the scientist going to India and then the auditorium. That to me is one of the best sequences of like they're communicating with us mm. and we're trying to understand. 
I just love that shit. I love I, it because I, it's very pure sci-fi. No, I do. I do like that shit. I don't love the way it was edited together. Eh, fair. But I like. I like it. I love. I love the payoff of it at the end. And the music. I mean, hello, John Williams. God damn. And then John I'm. And then for me, the the small part of my brain that does know some things about music is just like that's some tubas having fun. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, what's that instrument? What's that instrument getting to show off? That's that's the part of my brain that was having a little bit of fun. He went from Jaws, which is such an iconic score, to this, which is a, such an iconic score in a completely different way. And then I did like the the Jaws reference in the so film. So good. Was a little cheeky, but I'm like, I'm going to allow it. I'm going to let you have it because it's funny. In a lot of ways, this is this feels like Steven figuring shit out on how he wants to make movies, mm-hmm. which is does not necessarily make it a good movie watching experience. No. But it is interesting because you can see the gears turning in his head. All right. Well, the budget for this film was $20 million. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's roughly equivalent to $86 million today. Okay. It opened in the U.S. to about $1.8 million, but U.S. gross was $135 million, and globally it made $307 million. All right. It did very, very well. Yep. It was originally planned to be released in summer 1978, but he was making this movie for Columbia, and Columbia was near bankruptcy. Mm. They desperately needed the movie for late 1977. Okay. In fact, because of how thin Columbia's resources were, they started filming at the Air Traffic Control Center, which was the initial first scene of the movie, on December 29th, 1975, just so they could get the film qualified as a tax shelter for that year. They wrapped after two days of filming and then didn't resume until May 1976. Wow. (laughs) It was just like, we have to do something on this, Stephen. So (laughs) this is where it gets interesting, and this is going to be a common theme throughout this movie. Spielberg got a lot of ideas as he went along with this movie, and that's where it all becomes a mishmash. Mm. He initially pitched this as his first movie before Jaws. Okay. This is what he wanted to make. And it was it had an estimated 2.7 million budget. But the script development was taking too long. They couldn't quite get it together. And so instead, he went and did Jaws. After the success of Jaws, he was then able to go back to Columbia and say, okay, I want a 4.1 million budget with the caveat that it's all going to be studio-based. Okay. I want to do as little location filming as possible because that sucked. <laughs> But as it continued, the money grew and the time grew and Columbia got pissed. By the time principal photography started, the budget was already at $11 million. Yeah. Because Steven kept having ideas for the movie. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> like, okay, especially with a movie like this, having ideas for special effects usually isn't going to be an issue. But the plot becomes so muddy. Well, this movie is centered almost entirely on special effects. Yeah, and it's a problem. And with sci-fi, you really got to have a a good through line. Otherwise, you fucked. Like, there are other films that you can kind of edit your way around. Drama, comedies. It's usually not. You can usually get away with it. Even our action films. Like, if you've got, like, a good overarching story, you're like, let's add this action sequence. Let's add this. You can be okay. We've seen it. With some other things that we've watched that will, the series that will be coming soon later. You can't, sci fi is a really hard one to do that well. 
that doesn't mean it's not impossible, but it's hard to do well. It's impossible to not watch this movie and compare it a bit to 2001 because of the level of effects that they were trying to do. Now, Kubrick did an entirely different type of effect for 2001 Mm -hmm. because this is very much all visual effects. In fact, it's noted that like the stars in the sky, even in like just regular sequences, Mm -hmm. were all painted. And a lot of this was he didn't want to do location shooting. Fair. I mean, Jaws was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm not doing this again. But the amount of visual effects required for this movie was staggering. Yeah. And it would have to be. And that's the problem is if you come up with a new idea for one of these major sequences, mm-hmm. you now have to reconfigure the whole plot because those major sequences are the tent poles you're hanging your entire story on. Yeah. The aliens are so crucially important. And so it it, it becomes a, well, then you got to go back and rewrite. You got to go back and rewrite. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just he's still inexperienced and he doesn't know how to balance that very well. Yeah. The studio was actually so cheap that when Spielberg wanted the glass to shatter in the tower at Devil's Tower at the landing site, mm-hmm. they refused to fork over the couple thousand dollars to get the effect. What? Spielberg had to pay it out of his own pocket. To yeah, get well, that he to had happen. the money, so I don't. Feel yeah, he was fine with it, but he's just like, "Good God, <laughs> blowing out a window! Calm down." That's yeah, that's. But to be fair, he did keep adding stuff, and it kept going over budget and over budget. So I do understand the studio being like, "No." Yeah, there's there's <laughs> a lot of complicating factors with the studio because there's a producer who was a problem. Okay, but here's the thing: you were given a budget. You are not sticking to the script and your proposed budget. There's no studio that doesn't understand going over budget when shit happens. Shit happens. Delays happen. Steven is creating a problem. Steven's the problem. So you want to go over budget? It's coming out of your fucking pocket. Yeah. The flip side is, look at what I'm fucking making. And the studio went, okay. (laughs) That's not what we were paid you to do. They went along with it after they saw the stuff he was putting together. Still, I... Douglas Trumbull, who is a name that we'll talk about extensively later, he did all of the visual special effects. He was surprised by the low budget when it was first announced. He estimated that it was going to cost just $3 million for the special effects alone. Mm. And he pretty much nailed that number. He was pretty close to the final account. Okay. So Stephen took a year of conceptual planning with an illustrator, George Jensen, and they created about 2,000 storyboards for the final film. Okay. They plotted seven major film sequences, including the finale, which I must say is the best part of this movie. It is. It's amazing how well it still holds up, mm-hmm. being from 1977, but it produces exactly the reaction it wants to achieve, which is awe. <laughs> yes. And in a way that even 2001 didn't do. Correct. Like, that's what's kind of incredible about it. But it's that it's that childlike wonder thing that Spielberg is so good at. He definitely felt rushed and had to leave out some of his ideas for the film because they they kept saying, you have to get it by, by 77. Post-production did not finish until June 1977, which was too late to get the movie out as a blockbuster. That was probably okay because it would have had to compete with a little tiny movie called Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would have made no money. Oh yeah. See, that's the that's the specter looming over all of this is Lucas released Star Wars that summer. Your, your buddy Lucas would have. I mean, he did. He 
took all the monies. He took all the space monies. Actually, here's a funny story. So Lucas didn't think Star Wars was going to be a hit. I know. I mean, fair, right? We all know that. He's like, I'm making this for no money. I wrote it in five minutes. <laughs> like, I'm. J- he literally just made it to get a film made and to play with special effects. That was all he was doing. Spielberg thought, oh, it's a hit, bud. You've yeah. got a you've got a hit. Spielberg understood the nerd aspect of it. Well, Lucas thought Close Encounters was going to do better. He saw what Steven was doing and was like, oh, no, no, no. This is like pure sci-fi with a human element. Like, dude, you've got it. So they made an agreement because Lucas was like, I, if I lose big, maybe I get something on the back end. They agreed to take two and a half percent of the profits on each other's films. And to this day, they still get that profit arrangement. Yep. <laughs> well, and I mean, again, George Lucas still made the best deal he ever made in his life in that he took all of his money off of the merchandising. Exactly. I mean, he still gets the percentage, but almost all of the money that George Lucas has ever made off of Star Wars is on the merchandising, on the toys, because everyone was like, that's stupid. And he was just like, okay, but I'll t- I'm going to own that. No, it's not really stupid when I made couple billion dollars that's where all the money in those films is yep look look at how many franchises every time they print something that has any association with star wars he gets money anything anywhere in the world and now it's owned by disney all of that money goes into his pocket that man is a genius yep well there were actually six different rap parties for this movie before production was completed because steven kept revising the final product you don't you, you don't get that many parties <laughs> No, this is this is like this is like when older ladies keep having a birthday party every five minutes. I don't know. The, the only thing I can think is that there were six rap parties because different groups were finishing. I respect that each department can have a party. Right. I respect that. Like the special effects all happened after photography was done. So because of the success of this film, Columbia agreed with Spielberg to give him two million extra dollars to film one giant sequence for the special edition. So in 1980, Steven released what was a a director's cut in theaters called the special edition. And the biggest sequence that's included is that when Roy goes into the spaceship, Mm -hmm. you actually see the aliens. He gets pulled in and then he sees all the aliens inside. And John Williams plays a stylized version of When You Wish Upon a Star, Mm. which ties some of these other things together. There's also a couple extra sequences with the scientists where they're out at the Gobi Desert and find a ship and a tanker out in the middle of the desert. There's some different things that get added. But this is one of the first director's cuts that ever gets a wide release. Hmm. In retrospect, Stephen has basically said it probably wasn't necessary at the end of the day. It definitely wasn't necessary. But where I give him where I give him credit at the time is he was like, look, you forced me to rush this fucking thing. And so, of course, I wasn't able to put together a final product. Mm -hmm. Can you give me a chance to make the movie I want to make? And he'd made them so much fucking money that they were like, sure, go ahead, man. We'll make even more money now that we can re-release it. I get why they did it. Oh, I get it. But it's still annoying. Until the 30th anniversary in 2007, the theatrical cut was not available, except on Criterion Laserdisc. Laserdisc. And the version that we watched is the theatrical cut. Okay. Ultimately, Steven has said he is kind of dissatisfied with the final product of this movie. Quote, there wasn't enough wowness. And here's the thing. In the sense of it's moving too slowly, there's not enough punch to the effect. I get it. I agree with that. 
It's but a slow movie. It's a slow movie because he filled it with a bunch of stupid. Yeah, exactly. That's like, why he agrees. I was like, but that's your fault, dude. That's not the studio. That's you. No, no, no. He's talking about like now looking back on the movie and him making. Okay. <laughs> there is actually a third version. Oh, geez. Because television networks incorporated oh, yeah. some of the theatrical footage into the special edition. Okay. And showed it on TV in 1981. This is one of the first movies that was made under extreme secrecy. Okay. Like we're accustomed to now because Columbia needed it to be a hit. Yeah. I mean, they didn't want any, anyone to know anything before. And because Steven did not want TV ripoffs. Fair. Because that was a big common thing going on at that time. That's a common thing now. So we've been having this conversation with our kids. Our 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 son is really into. He's been loving The Incredibles. Well, he just discovered the movie Megamind. Uh huh. He's like, it's just like The Incredibles. I love it. I love it. I love it. He's been watching it on a loop. <laughs> it's really annoying. And my daughter was like, well, yeah, it's is is it made by the same people who did The Incredibles? So like, well, like no, it's kind of like a ripoff. What does that mean? <laughs> and it's just like, okay, well, it's not a ripoff. So we kind of had to explain what. What happens? Like, well, someone will come up with a movie and it'll be a really great idea. And so other people will come up with a similar idea or maybe they had the same idea at the same time, but one will be really good. And so the other one will come out and it may be just as good or it might even be better, but it just didn't get the same publicity. And so it's always looked at as the ripoff version or the imitation version of the thing that was really big. And so it's really kind of fun to explain how that can happen. Like, so there are probably a lot of things that you're watching that you may think is really the great, the greatest thing ever, but that might actually be the lesser successful version of the thing. Yeah. And in this case, it was like they were churning out really low budget bullshit to try to match what was going on. Totally. So everyone was required to wear an ID badge on set. Spielberg actually got barred from set when he forgot his. That was how tight they kept security. That's hilarious. And he edited the film, not in the studios, but in an apartment in Marina Del Rey under guard. That feels excessive, but okay. That's how they devoted they were to keeping it a secret, I mean, man. I'm, I'm, I'm not mad. Yeah. That's funny. He did receive a lot of high praise for this film. Mm. And I get it in the sense of the technical achievement. Okay. I agree with that. Yeah. Ray Bradbury, the prolific sci-fi mm. author, declared this the greatest science fiction film ever made. He's wrong. And Jean Renoir, the legendary French director, who we'll talk a lot about French directors here in a little bit, okay. compared the film to the work of Jules Verne and French cinematic trailblazer Georges Méliès, okay. which is maybe an apt comparison. Méliès was known for creating a bunch of the common camera techniques we know today in the 1910s. Okay. So I think that's where... That's a very apt comparison for Steven in this. They were doing shit nobody would ever done before. So let's talk about our writer. And our main writer is Steven Spielberg. Yay. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, but there's a lot more writers. Yeah, but I think I've realized that I don't like it when he writes things. No, he does I, not need to write a film. He should not be allowed to write things. He learned that lesson. <laughs> Good. I know. Because no. So his only writing credits are The Sugarland Express, Poltergeist, the Goonies, Amazing Stories for Television, which is fair. It's in the writer's room for that. Sure. And then he worked on the screenplay for AI, Artificial Intelligence, of course. Ugh. I know. I know. That movie is so bad. Yeah. And my favorite statement when I saw that movie 
my brother said after that movie was not only did they make a bad movie, they made a bad movie three and a half hours long. Yeah. 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 <sighs> but that's not the only writer because there are a shit ton of uncredited writers. Okay. Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, did the original draft of this film, but he removed his name from the credits when Spielberg majorly overhauled the script. I understand that. I have to assume Schrader's was way darker, considering the films of his that we've seen on this show. Yeah, I would I would expect that as well. Hal Barwood did additional story work on this. He wrote The Sugarland Express with Steven and also did a bunch of work on Indiana Jones video games. Jerry Belson did some writing on this. He was a writer on the Dick Van Dyke show, Love American Style, and the television adaptation of The Odd Couple. So maybe the jokes, I guess? I don't know. John Hill did some writing. He wrote Quigley Down Under and was a producer on L.A. Law and Quantum Leap. Matthew Robbins did additional story work. He wrote the original concept for George Lucas's short film, Electronic Labyrinth, THX 11384EB, which was eventually adapted into his first feature. He also wrote for the Sugarland Express, Batteries Not Included, Mimic, Crimson Peak, and is writing 2021's Pinocchio adaptation. Oh, cool. I'm very interested in that. David Geiler, who wrote the story for Aliens, the screenplay for Alien 3, and was a producer on all of the Alien films. And Walter Hill, who wrote The Warriors, 48 Hours, Streets of Fire, Aliens, Alien 3, and is also a main producer on the Alien films. Okay. That's too many writers. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about muddling a script. Yep. <laughs> it's not hard. It's not hard. Now I'm going to tell you now, this is not the most of any one position in this movie. Mm-hmm. We will get there when we get to the awards. Oh. Because okay. there is an epic saga related to the awards. Oh. One specific element of this film. Interesting. I bet I know what it is too. But what do we think about the writing? Crap. Ah, it's not great. It's crap. It's too, it's messy. There's no through line. This movie wanders around too much. And we know part of that is because Steven decided to add things. And it's just, it's messy. And the main story needs to be, we've discovered this phenomenon. We're going to focus on understanding this phenomenon. And while we're doing that, we're going to take a peek at how it's affected the people that it's interacted with. And that's where we see Roy, and that's where we see the the mom whose little boy gets abducted. Yeah, that's Roy, it. Roy and Jillian. Yeah, Roy and Jillian, and that's fine. And how like they somehow get connected, don't have them fucking kiss. That, that was obnoxious and unnecessary. And I knew it was coming. I knew it because of course. And it's just like, well, oh, rude. I do want to say Stephen has gone on record and has said this over and over again. He has one gigantic regret about the story of this film. Mm -hmm. And it is that if he made it today, Roy would never abandon his family. Yeah. And and I get that. This is a much better movie if he is like, I love you. I want to be with you, but I have to figure this out. I have to see this through. And then once I'm done, I'm done. (laughs) Yeah. And then the end of the movie could be him just going back to his family. It's like, I'm done. Yeah. It's over. Like, that's the compelling story. That could be a compelling story. But that's not what this movie is about. No. That's not the interesting part of this story. But whatever. Lacombe should go with the aliens. My God. Yeah, there you go. That's what he's worked his entire life for. There you go. It's just, it's like the idea is great. Idea is great. There are elements of the story that are also great. It just got fucked up with all of all of this mess. Yeah, they just, they kept redoing it and redoing it to try to fit what the effects were they were thinking about. and. 
like we said, he just he had not figured out that balance mm-hmm. in this movie. Jaws, that balance came out of necessity. Well, and I, I think this also comes back from like, you know, there's no restraint here because they didn't have to have any restraint. He wasn't forced in a corner at all. Exactly. He was allowed to do whatever he wanted. And I'm I'm just really starting to think, okay, I think directors, you can shoot your movie, do whatever you want. It's got to sit in a vault for a year before you're allowed to release shit because <laughs> because you you need some you need some distance because you know that's what happens is they they you just get too close to it and you can't see the problems you can't see what you've done I know I've seen that when I'm editing stuff and I was like why did I say that Jesus Christ what's wrong with me or oh that was dumb or I'm like oh I can clean this I can tighten this up a little bit and it's just that distance from from the thing yeah and again. This isn't this isn't an excuse for Steven at all. No. But being rushed doesn't help that. No. A studio saying you have to get this out next year, come hell or high water, and you're like, yeah, but like we're making something kind of groundbreaking here. That tension is not gonna yield good results. Nope. <laughs> nope. Well, the story is inspired partly from Spielberg's experience of being rushed into the car one night by his parents and driving them all off to see a meteor shower. That's cool. It's also a grown-up reimagining of a film he made as an adolescent called Firelight. Okay. Which is about small-town people encountering aliens. Okay. So he actually gave Douglas Trumbull and his cinematographer notes that he had made while he made Firelight to help them come up with some some visual ideas and cues for the movie. So in a lot of ways, this is like, this really was a, a little baby project for him. Like, this was something very close to his heart, and he'd been thinking about for a long time. There are a ton of story notes from actual UFO experiences, and that, again, the context is lost here in this movie because they don't do a good job of explaining it. Nope. But there's some interesting tidbits. So the Flight 19, the Navy pilots, that was an actual flight that disappeared from Fort Lauderdale in December 1945 Mm -hmm. and was lost somewhere over the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. To this day, there has been no trace of that flight. That's cool. The Army press conference that we see in the film mm-hmm. is a reimagining of the press conferences held after Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast Okay. and the Roswell, New Mexico incident hmm. that very much tried to absolutely discredit it, regardless of the potential implications. Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't even give credence to the theory. Yeah. And by doing that, they just fueled the conspiracy. Yeah, they just wouldn't even, like, talk about it. And it was just like, oh, y'all are covering it up. Well, I got a couple of thousand goddamn questions, you know? I want to speak to someone in charge. I want a lodge a complaint. You have no right to make people crazy. You think I investigate every Walter Cronkite story there is, huh? If this is just nerve gas, how come I know everything in such detail? I've never been here before. How come I know so much? What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you people? Even weirder with Roswell is that at one point they made the statement, there is an alien craft. Which, to be fair, with a UFO, there was an alien craft. It was a craft that they could not explain. Yep. And that is that is the thing about UFOs. You don't know, but you generally assume it's some type of just unidentified aircraft that they haven't seen before. Unidentified aircraft, all people tend to take it as, you know, oh, it's aliens from outer space. It's like what that means is that it's not registered anywhere and it's not been manufactured by any 
registered agent, which means it's homemade and somebody's fucking around in the backyard. That can all mean UFO. Or experimental aircraft. That, that, that all, happens too. <laughs> that all means UFO. Yep. Jillian and Barry hearing footsteps on the roof during the abduction scene is very similar to the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter that spurred the little green men theory mm-hmm. and is also echoed in signs. Signs. Takes a lot from that, that version. Electrical blackouts and malfunctions are commonly reported with UFO sightings. Mm-hmm. And the fumigated cattle is an interesting visual. It's not a UFO abduction, obviously. They're putting the cattle to sleep to make it look like they're dying. Yep. But the evisceration of livestock is a very common trait of UFO abductions. Yeah. And there's a ton of other little details like that peppered throughout. But again, if you don't say that to the audience, that context is not there. Yeah, if there's not somebody... And this is where if you had, if you were focusing on the scientists, you could have them saying, we're seeing more reports of this, which we've seen in other reports of UFOs, blah, blah, blah. Then people doing the exposition makes sense. There's so much crosstalk about like the tones and the broadcast and never enough about the actual visual things they're seeing. Mm -hmm. Like just one scene of Truffaut and Balaban and them talking about, you know, a giant electrical disturb, like saying, put these pieces together. Mm-hmm. Just do that. One scene of that would help tremendously. <laughs> Spielberg actually conceived of this as a way lower budget movie initially, or even a documentary about people who believe in aliens. And Jacques Lacombe is based on French ufologist Jacques Vallée, considered one of the preeminent UFO investigators of the 20th century. Mm. And that brings us to our director, who is Steven Spielberg. Because of course it is. That's why we're here. We. What do you think of his directing? I have to go with it's kind of crap. Ooh. Because, okay, so here's the problem. I feel like I'm giving him, I want to give him too much credit for special effects. And then I feel like he's being praised as this great director, but only because of special effects. And it's like, no, you take away special effects, your movie is shit. And he, is, he admits as much. He gives massive credit to Douglas Trumbull for doing all the visual special effects on this movie because nobody knew how to do what he was trying to do. He said, if Trumbull hadn't been on the movie, I would still be in the back lot trying to figure out how to make a cloud emanate out of midair. <laughs> like, he recognizes I am not the person who solely made this movie. This took a giant team and collaborative effort. Okay, so Jaws, not him. This movie, not him. This movie, <laughs> anything that's good in this movie has nothing the fuck to do with him. The end. Well, I don't think that's true. It doesn't. <laughs> okay, the only thing that's good in this movie are the special effects. He gets really good performances. <sighs> it's a shitty script. Okay, but here's the thing. The special... All right, I will say that he can get really good performances. He's really good with kids. This movie has one kid, one real kid. Well, yeah. That's in the movie for five seconds. And also, what is your obsession with blonde children? I don't know, man. Like, he does all the time. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? No, no. Sorry, dude. The reason he is getting acclaim for directing this movie is the marshalling of resources and vision. It isn't that he's doing anything outstanding himself as a director. It is that he is coordinating everybody toward a common goal. Again, I would agree with you that common goal is still really fucking messy. 
but I do understand the level of like from a filmmaker's perspective, this movie was mind blowing. <laughs> I just this movie is not it's just not that good. If I'm only looking at the this Jaws and this, these movies are good in spite of him. Like Jaws, you can look at and go, yeah, you had to work around a lot of problems. Yeah. And that does that takes good leadership, which is what a director is supposed to be. But I think about that more in terms of on television. That's what all a director is. Like on television, especially an established show, a director shows up, a new director shows up every week. Their job is just to make sure that what's on the to-do list gets done. That's it. Steven's first legitimately great movie isn't until Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, honestly, if we're, I'm, Jaws is legitimately great. Let's not let's It is not good, say that. but it has very little to do with him. But I think Raiders is the first time where he comes into his own, partly because his movie before that, 1941, was a massive fucking failure. And so I'm just like, you're directing sucks because I also now learning that he kept trying to add shit it's just like that did not help you yeah the perspective I get is very much inexperience and inability to edit where, def- that boy definitely does not know how to edit whereas later on he gets a little more of that balance hmm. and again I think he gets a little more of that balance in movies where it's very personal for him <laughs> his movies where it's acclaimed for having all of that balance and feeling are Schindler's List Saving Private Ryan. (laughs) These movies that are not his giant blockbusters. Oh, those two films are giant blockbusters. Okay. Those are giant blockbusters. But they were they were not filmed intended to be that way. No. And that's that's the thing for him. Also, it points to why he does spend so much time producing instead of directing. Agreed. Because that is really his biggest talent. Yeah, which I think is so funny. But that's what's that's what this movie is proving is he is so good at having ideas mm-hmm. and so good at finding the right people to figure out those ideas and work with to make that. Well, but he's not necessarily good at being the guy on the ground to do it. Well, and what's also funny is one of his best friends, George Lucas, same problem. Yeah. Idea man. Like, that's what he's good at. He is so good with the ideas. He's a horrible director. And he's the other problem that George Lucas has, which I also think Steven has as well, is he just doesn't know when to stop tinkering because he wants to tinker with it. And I understand that because he's an idea guy. He's like, well, what if I just did this? What if I, oh, that's yeah. fine. But stop releasing your shit. To his credit, this is the only movie where he's really done that. Well, no, he did E.T. He didn't have doing it with E.T. But E.T. is considered way better than this. E.T. is way better than this. It is. Well, location scouting was very interesting for this movie. Mm-hmm. So Joe Alvis, the production designer, who is also masterful, drove 2,700 miles across the West to figure out where the mountain site was going to be. Okay. They needed just some kind of right look. So finally, he wound up getting to Wyoming and seeing Devil's Tower. It was incredibly similar to Monument Valley, where the searchers had been filmed, and Stephen had been watching the searchers constantly while he was developing the movie. Okay. Devil's Tower, though, wasn't as familiar to most film audiences. Okay. And Devil's Tower is such an abrupt entry from the landscape. Mm -hmm. It goes nearly straight up, it's craggy, and then just completely flat on top. Mm -hmm. It's very eerie. And so they decided that was the perfect place to do this landing. Mm -hmm. It would be so perfect for like, what is this weird shape and why am I obsessing over it? Fair. At the time, the locals in Wyoming were pretty pissed about them filming on the site. But then later, Elvis went back and saw that there was a local gift shop selling souvenirs and memorabilia from the film. Yeah. <laughs> no, 
I get it, but also like it is a very weird formation. Exactly. It's it's a weird formation. It's not very well known, so it is perfect for a film like this. Exactly. Yeah, and it's and it's so unsettling when you don't know what it is. When you don't know what it is, sure. If I was to drive by it, I wouldn't think it was unsettling. I would think it was like some weird volcano or a geyser type. Yeah, it's it's only unsettling in that these people are obsessing over this shape and you can't figure out why. Correct. Spielberg and Alvis considered using Monument Valley itself, but actually the climate and lighting was going to be too difficult too. Okay. So in order to film, they couldn't go to Devil's Tower to actually film the sequence. It wasn't big enough. They found an abandoned airplane hangar in Mobile, Alabama. And that is where primary shooting happened for most of this film. Hmm. Mobile fills in for Muncie, Indiana. Okay. And the surrounding areas. Now, this hangar was bigger than a football field, six times larger than any soundstage. So all of this stuff you're seeing with the stars and stuff, it was Uh all done inside the hangar. Okay. All of that was painted on later. Okay. But because they were in Alabama in the summer... The airplane hangar had its own climate. Of course. The humidity would get trapped inside and there would be clouds and occasional rain. We've heard that about a different location before. Yeah. Like it was so nasty in there that they were like, it's raining on set. No, that's just the humidity. Yep. It happens. It, It just, it's so big. To get the lighting done, they had to use dozens of enormous lights. They were having to pull out arc lights from the Technicolor era mm. to get the lighting required to get the massive soundstage lit up. That makes sense. And they had 200 extras in that sequence to choreograph. So like this, 50% of the filming was that landing sequence. Yeah. They marshaled most of their resources, and it was one of the first things they filmed. That makes sense. It was probably the biggest reason for the delays in costs. It wound up taking half the shooting schedule, despite it only being about one-fifth of the total film's running time. And then during a really bad summer storm, the side of the hangar blew off entirely. What? Nobody got hurt, but repairs caused further delays. Richard Dreyfuss said, quote, part of the shoot was a nightmare. It went from fun to frightening. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Per Stephen, quote, that set became our shark on this picture, unquote. The Geiler home was an old farmhouse outside Fairhope, Alabama. It had a very solitary quality that he felt fit. Jillian's character is kind of a free spirit, kind of a loner, that type of thing. And because of filming in Alabama, most of the local extras have Alabama accents. Okay. Which is, it's a little noticeable. You're like, I'm in Indiana. Why do they sound Southern? Oh, that's that's in Indiana. I know. that's, That's not weird at all. But to Elvis's credit, they visited Muncie to get local details and props. So Roy's map in the truck is an actual map of Muncie. And then they got a bunch of memorabilia from the Ball State University bookstore that they peppered throughout the Neary's home. Okay. Just to give it that level of detail. And Stephen was obsessed with the details when they were dealing with the family sequences. Mm. He wanted to make that stuff look super lived in. And I will give him credit. It looks like a home. That's something he's always done really well. Yeah, dude's got some family issues. (laughs) Yeah. While filming the live sequences, Spielberg only had a general idea of what the mothership was going to look like. Okay. Originally, it was going to be a giant, bulky, dark disc. Okay. And so they shot all these scenes with a shadow Mm -hmm. going over people. Then while he was in India, he drove past an oil refinery. 
and saw the lights and the outcroppings and the pipes. And that's what coalesced into the final image that we get. I like that. With all the giant lighting on the mothership. It's a little weird because we'd already filmed all the shadows on people. Mm-hmm. But the final effect makes it really beautiful and weird and interesting. I, yeah, I'm fine with that. It ended up looking really cool. So He claims that editing the last 35 minutes of the movie was the most difficult experience of his life. Okay. Which I get. There's so much going on. And how do I make it? fit right Mm -hmm. and flow right because it truly is the culmination of the movie Hmm. and that is it for mr steven spielberg we now get to our cast and we talk about an actor we literally just talked about we did but this time he's the main character okay it's richard dreyfus playing roy neary Hmm. what do we think about richard dreyfus in this movie He's, I mean, he's good. He's Richard Dreyfus, so he's never bad. It's very weird seeing him play Midwest worker, dude. A little bit. Because that's not who he is. No, not at all. I just kind of feel bad for him the whole film. As an actor? Yeah, the character. Oh, uh, the character. I don't like I mean, he, But he's, he's good in the film. Yeah, um, I, I do hate that he kisses Jillian and then decides, I'm going with the aliens. Yeah. Even when it's kind of suggested through the film that he doesn't really have a choice. Yeah. Um, It's this. It's this pressure of like, look, they want to communicate with you. Go talk. Go be with them. Yeah. And again, I think the other implication is like they they brought back Barry like a couple of days later. Yeah. So the idea may be that he's going to go spend a little bit of time with them and come back and it's not going to be that long. Yeah. Like the idea isn't like they're not like kidnapping. It's like there's almost like they're just kind of studying you. They, they want to communicate with us. Yeah. And it's all in the writing, right? Yeah. But I do think his performance does rise above the writing enough for me to go, this is legit really good. And it's very different than what we would normally see from Richard Dreyfuss. Mm-hmm. Parts it is. Oh, my God. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a little generous. Okay. 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 But, but I do like him. I, I do like him in this role. Well, he got interested in the film while talking about alien encounters and the subject matter with Steven on the set of Jaws. Of course. And when he found out about casting, he started campaigning for the role. Sure. Spielberg thought he was too young. The character was originally written as 45 years old. Okay. So it was more like a Sheriff Brody. Okay. But eventually, Spielberg took to him because he thought Dreyfus brought the childlike look at the aliens that mm-hmm. he wanted for that character. I, I think that's fair. And compared to the other choices that are on the list, it actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, who could have been better? We are going to mention this name. And this is a name that very nearly tanked this fucking movie as a producer for Columbia. Julia Phillips, who had developed a pretty rough cocaine habit at the time. She worked with Columbia throughout the 70s. Okay. And there are a couple of times where she nearly sabotaged this fucking production because she thought she knew better than everybody else. Okay. So... In this case, she she may have had a point. She didn't want to meet Richard Dreyfus's payment demands. They, he wanted $500,000 plus gross. That's a lot. That's a lot. In, the, in, in 1977, that's a lot. So here's who else they considered. Okay. Al Pacino. Okay. Not interested. Fair. 77 Al Pacino, though, interesting choice. Uh, interesting choice, wrong vibe, and de- this is not his type of movie at all. Jack Nicholson. Same thing. Thought any actor would be too overwhelmed by the effects. Fair. Which, fair, but that's mostly him projecting. Yeah, also, also, shut up. <laughs> Gene Hackman. Oh, 
would have been great. Would have been amazing, was in a troubled marriage and could not leave LA for the lengthy shoot of 16 weeks. Fair. He needed to he needed to figure he, out what he was gonna he do. He needed to stay home and deal with his shit. Yep. Fair. Steve McQueen. Now, if you're going for a Sheriff Brody type character, maybe. Because we've got an older, more gravitas dude. But McQueen turned it down saying he could not cry on film. Hmm. So interesting. Okay. Dustin Hoffman. <sighs> no. No. Just... Too neurotic. And I know Richard Dreyfus is the epitome of neurotic. I mean, he's... But if anybody's more neurotic than Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> Richard Dreyfus has has range, has neurotic range. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman does not. No. And finally, the studio pitched James Caan, mm -hmm. who would have been better if they were going for that original vision, but he wanted $1 million and 10% gross on the film. Yeah. <laughs> so Phillips finally went back to Dreyfus. They cut his rate just a little bit, and they got him in the role. And it was as iconic for him as Hooper was in Jaws. Like, this was a big fucking deal for Richard Dreyfus. Sure. Francois Truffaut playing Claude Lacombe. This is his only ever main role in a film. Francois Truffaut is mainly known as one of the original and classic French New Wave film directors. He did The 400 Blows, Jules and Jim, and 1966's Fahrenheit 451 mm -hmm. adaptation. He has appeared as a character in some of his own films. Mm -hmm. But this is the only time he's ever been an actor in a film he did not direct himself. What do we think of Francois Truffaut acting in this movie? He, I mean, honestly, in this film, he's just French scientist dude. So, like, that's fine. Like, I didn't know who he was. Like, I, yeah. I've heard that name before, so it's fine. But, like, I don't, <laughs> I don't have, like, a visual frame of reference for him. So, like, that wasn't distracting at all for me. It was just, like, French guy, French scientist man. And that's fine. So I just find it funny that, why are you in this movie? It's the weirdest stunt <laughs> casting ever, but it works. <laughs> it's kind of like when Sidney Pollack showed up in things, when he when he really started being more of a director than an actor, you're like, why are you in this movie? What are you doing? Yeah, but he's like, in Eyes Wide Shut, he's fucking incredible. Oh, he is, but you're just like, again, why are you in this movie? I know. <laughs> and, and Truffaut is very much that. Like, this guy was not fully the legend that he is now, mm -hmm. but he was a legend to Spielberg and his cohorts mm -hmm. for sure. And the fact that he's in this movie is so bizarre, but I've got to say he's one of the most enjoyable characters for me. Yeah. He feels so incredibly natural as a scientist in the, inhabiting that character. You feel that curiosity from him while also be trying to be reasonable the whole time. Mm -hmm. He feels like the voice of reason as everybody else is kind of losing their shit. And he, the fact that he has to do that while not understanding English. <laughs> yeah, he's literally just scientist man. Yeah. Which is great. He's the, like, in, in all honesty, he's the most grounded character in the whole movie. He, he is. So Spielberg was rightfully shocked when Truffaut decided to do this movie. He was Spielberg's first choice. But it was one of those like, huh, I don't know. Let's ask him and see. Like, it was a total just like, he'll never agree to do it. But what the hell? Yeah. He was so incredibly intimidated by this happening. Like, this was him and his crew's personal hero. Hmm. Because Truffaut, out of all of the French New Wave film directors, is very akin to Spielberg in the sense of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is not a good example of that. But like... Truffaut did the thing of, I'm going to break the rules, but I'm only going to do it in order to tell a good story. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas Godard spent his time just fucking breaking rules to break them. He's very Quentin Tarantino. And Truffaut's like, I don't, I don't care so much as long as we like do a good job and tell an interesting story. Then I'll fuck around with the camera if I need to. So Truffaut actually liked Steven's previous films. And he agreed on the condition that he said, I am not an actor. I can only play myself. And Spielberg said, that's exactly why I asked you to do this. In most of his other roles, like he's played a director. One of his big films was Day for Night when he plays the film director. (laughs) But it's very much just Truffaut being himself on camera with this bent of being a scientist instead of a director. So Truffaut got paid $75,000 for the film, which was $343,000. He made it absolutely clear he would not help as an assistant director. He was strictly an actor on set. He observed, he was very fascinated by the whole process, Mm -hmm. but he would not actually help in any directing of the sequences. Good. Good for him. No, that's appropriate. I mean, like, as someone who is a director, you can't not be fascinated and observe and want to, like, know as much as you can while you're there. But it's like, my job here is to be an actor, and so that's what I'm going to be. Mm -hmm. I'm only going to be a director. And also... When you have experience doing something and your job is to do something else on a set, you don't need to overstep that bound. Like, if Steven came up to you like, can I have your opinion on this thing as a director? That's a different thing. Yeah. But you, you, when, you are, when you are asked to show up as one thing, you should stay in that lane. Well, it was a huge culture shock for him, too. Sure. These are not the movies he makes. No. In talking with Terry Garr at one point, he noted a single helicopter shot cost $250,000. For that amount of money, he could make an entire film. Yep. (laughs) So this was like, this is not the movie I kind of make, man. Um, He was exhausted by the long shoots because he hadn't done it. And he got a little frustrated that he couldn't actually go make movies himself because he kept having to be on set. When Spielberg went to show him the giant landing site, he's like, okay, check this out. Truffaut wasn't that impressed. Mm-hmm. He was very nonplussed. And they realized him and his crew, he only ever directed in small, intimate settings. Mm. So he couldn't even grasp the idea of the scale of this set. Yeah. I, I think he assumed, oh, we're just at a landing strip. He didn't realize, no, this is all built, man. <laughs> yeah. When they went to the hotel room where Jillian sees the Devil's Tower for the first time in that one sequence, he lifted up his hands and was like, now this is a set. <laughs> He enjoyed his time a lot. He got a huge insight into acting, which he brought with him back to make his own movies, and said he had a ton of respect for Spielberg for his calm, patience, and humor. Despite his relative inexperience in front of the camera, he said, quote, several times during the shooting, Spielberg made me come out of myself. Thanks to that, I discovered a real pleasure as an actor. He also noted that, quote, in the face of overwhelming hardships and innumerable complications that would, I suspect, have discouraged most directors, Steven Spielberg's perseverance and fortitude were simply amazing. Hmm. So he has a lot of praise for Steven just as a working director. Sure. He did reportedly not think the final product was that great for this film. Well, he's correct. But when E.T. premiered at Cannes in 1982... When the film ended, a lone figure reportedly stood up and started applauding, leading the rest of the crowd. It was Francois Truffaut, who would later go on record as saying he thought E.T. was one of the great movies ever. And he sent Stephen a telegram later, referring to his line, quote, you belong here more than me. Aww. <laughs> it's very good. That's sweet. 
His English was not very good. No. So to get through his scenes, he put pieces of paper with his English lines on objects so that he could read them (laughs) while they were off camera. When he's arguing with an army officer that has their back to the camera, the lines are pinned to the character's (laughs) chest. He actually developed this trick with an actress who had trouble remembering her lines in Day for Night. He just said, okay, put the lines on them. Let's just do it that way. Fuck it. <laughs> I got no problems with that. <laughs> he's such a genius. That That's what's cool about him is he's infinitely practical. Well, that's just one of those like, yes, you want actors to know their lines and you should know your lines. But there are some things, especially when there's a language barrier that like we also have to do things that are just practical. Yeah. There's been episodes of television where... You just have these long scenes with these people, and it's just they're like the actress just said, "Oh, we just put up um, prompters on the." Sometimes other side. you just have to get through it, just because like these are supposed to be as close to one shots as possible, and we the only way we're gonna we were gonna get through them is if we had prompters up. And also, you might be doing rewrites. Yeah, you might be in the middle of that and say, "Oh, we need to change this." Well, you can't memorize it that quickly. No, <laughs> he was very self conscious of his accent when he said, "They belong here more than we." Most of the crew thought he said, they belong here, Mozambique. <laughs> the crew had it printed up on t-shirts, and when Truffaut found out, he reportedly burst out laughing. Yeah, that's pretty funny. He has such a good sense of humor about himself. You have to. Oh, so good. Who could have been better for this role? There were a lot of famous French actors they considered. Gérard Depardieu, Philippe Noiret of Cinema Paradiso and Il Postino, Jean-Louis Chintigant, he was a French New Wave actor extraordinaire, and Yves Montand, the singer and French actor extraordinaire. So they did consider some big name French actors, but Truffaut agreed. And I think the film's better for it. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't know the difference, but... I like him. I just like him in the movie. He did a great job. We have Terry Garr playing Ronnie Neary. Before this, she did lots of just television and stuff in the 60s. She was a comedy person. She was in the conversation. And then probably most known for Young Frankenstein as Ilsa. And then in Oh God. After this, she's in The Black Stallion, One from the Heart, Fairy Tale Theater, Tootsie, Mr. Mom, After Hours, Let It Ride, The Player, Dumb and Dumber, Ready to Wear, Michael, Dick, Ghost World, and Kablue. What do we think of Terry Gar in this film? I, mean, I love Terry Gar. Yeah. She's phenomenal. And then like, I know she's just one of those people. I'm like, I know I've seen her in everything. I know I've seen everything. But I was like, there was something about, I was like, I've seen her in one particular thing. There's, there's that one particular thing that I was like, what is it? What is it? The thing that I know her the most from I was like, <gasps> she's Phoebe's mom. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, ah, she's Phoebe's mom. She just felt floopy that day. I mean, she's the seventies Lisa Kudrow. Man, is she? She's, <laughs> she can do that tone and that flippant things. Just she really can, and it's so funny because I'm trying to decide now that Lisa Kudrow is that age. It's really fun to be like. Who's Lisa Kudrow now? <laughs> I'm trying to decide, like, who is it? I don't know if we've discovered who that is yet, but probably I, not. I love Lisa Kudrow and I love Terry Gar, and this makes me really happy. She's <laughs> she's phenomenal in this movie. She's such a beleaguered mom and a and a beleaguered woman who's like, what the fuck is happening to this dude? Because like she's trying to be cool. And she's like, okay, whatever. Like, my husband's being a little weird, you're being a little crazy. But once it turns to you're ripping out the plants and throwing them in my house and you're actually scaring the kids i'm done you're terrifying the children i'm done and so she's great and i love her and i just i want to watch more of her like they play that scene for laughs but it is terrifying because and what's even more terrifying is it opens with him being like it's gonna be fine i'm over it 
I'm done. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. And then having the realization. Yeah. And then it just devolving into madness. It keeps going and going. And like the only thing, like I said, that I want, and this isn't, has nothing to do with her. It's just like, I want him to then have a conversation mm-hmm. to finally be like, I agree. I've, I've fucked this all up, but I have to see this through. Once I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> yep. So that we can just have that little bit of closure. Yeah. Because, and like Stephen recognizes, like, I had kids. That's fucked up. That is fucked up for a man to do to his family. The only fun trivia for her, she was cast off the strength of a coffee commercial. Mm-hmm. Spielberg was completely impressed by her range of emotions in a 30 second act. And so decided she needed to play this role. We have Melinda Dillon playing Jillian Geiler. Before this, she was in The April Fool's Bound for Glory and Slapshot. We have seen her before. Mm. After this, Fist, The Muppet Movie, A Christmas Story, Harry and the Hendersons, The Prince of Tides, Two Wong Fu, How to Make an American Quilt, Magnolia, and most recently, Rain Over Me. What do we think of Melinda Dillon playing Jillian? She's okay. I don't get as much range from her. She got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. She did? Yeah. Really? It, it honestly is the kid getting abducted stuff. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And that and to be fair, that is when she really starts shining as a character. I guess I feel like that I just I wasn't as engaged in that whole storyline, so I just didn't I just didn't care. And yeah, it's, it's I think it I think it was an audience connection at the time of just like, oh my sure. god, her son is gone. Sure. And no one will listen to her. But yeah, I no, I get it. She's not the most impressive actress in the film. But I think it was just that immediate connection. She wasn't cast until the weekend before filming started. Mm-hmm. Spielberg just could not find the right person for the role. And then Hal Ashby, who had worked with her in Bound for Glory, suggested her, sent some reels of her performance to Spielberg. Spielberg saw it, instantly went to hire her. She had a broken toe when they started filming at Devil's Tower mm-hmm. during the running up the mountain sequence. She was afraid of getting replaced, so she toughed it out and ran up that mountain with a broken toe. We have Carrie Guffey playing Barry, the little kid. Mm. Now, he doesn't have nearly any film roles after this, but he deserves recognition. Sure. Because he does a very good job in this movie. (laughs) He was five years old. Mm -hmm. Kubrick liked him so much, he wanted to cast him as Danny in The Shining, based off of this movie. Oh, okay. But it turned out Carrie Guffey was busy doing what wound up being really shitty Italian movie. He would nail shots perfectly in one take, and they all took to calling him One Take Carry. At some point, Steven printed him a t-shirt with that nickname on Aww, it. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> he was just that good of an actor, naturally. Well, that's, I mean, that's what you need in a, in a child actor. To, to have that in a child actor is amazing. And I think really, because uh, he was so young, like he has no idea he's actually acting. For sure. It was that he had such strong reactions. Mm-hmm. Like, to get him to be surprised by the aliens, Mm -hmm. Steven had two crew members in boxes. One popped out as a clown, and one popped out as a gorilla. So then when the cameras rolled, Carrie was just like, whoa! And then the gorilla took their mask off, and Carrie immediately smiled. And so it was just pure reaction. He just had big, natural reactions to things. He was actually crying when he's saying goodbye to the aliens, because Spielberg told him to think of all of his friends going away forever. Guffey was actually shortlisted for Best Supporting Actor that year at the Oscars. Not, no, no. He would have been the youngest nominee in history at five years old. No, thank you, no. You don't like him? Uh, Not for Best, no. (laughs) Just, this, okay, 
we've had this conversation before, but this is where you bring back the recognition of a young performer. Yes, absolutely. Because I, again, I don't think it's fair to put someone, especially in the like 10 and younger up against people who have to do way media roles. Because some years you just have one or two kids or you just have one kid. So I would have been fine with maybe that, but to actually consider him for a best porning actor, like, no, like, not it's it's not even worth printing his name on a piece of paper. Yeah, he did get nominated, but I I do understand that it was such a big movie and people were very impressed uh, that he got on the list for the short list. I understand being impressed with his performance, but that's where I'm like I'm fine with occasionally when something this comes along having one of these special one-off Oscars. They've done that before. They've had it and I was like let's bring that back because I don't think it's fair to put a young child in the same category with some of these other performances. Unless they were just that good. That's where we get into. And I think this is where we get into more like we need to have some more conversation about what qualifies as supporting versus lead is like, what's their screen time? How many lines do they have? Is did this child literally have all the screen time? Then sure. Put them up against, you know, best actor. Sure. But this kid didn't. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. Then we can have those types of conversations, but this would literally be like where we talk about like Margaret O'Brien and Judy Garland's and, you know, the the kid from Kramer versus Kramer. It's like, okay, special Oscar category. <laughs> and Guffey later in commentary said he was super embarrassed at the time to film the exit of the mothership because he had to wear ballet slippers to stop from falling off the ramp. No, <laughs> little five-year-old blonde boy. And finally, in our main cast, Bob Balaban playing David Laughlin. It's so weird to see Bob Balaban with hair. Uh huh. Before this, he was in Midnight Cowboy, 1970s Catch 22, Making It, and The Bank Shot. After this, get ready. Everything. Girlfriends, Altered States, Absence of Malice, Whose Life Is It Anyway? 2010, Dead Bang, Bob Roberts, Waiting for Guffman, Clock Watchers, Deconstructing Harry, Cradle Will Rock, Best in Show. Ghost World, Gosford Park, The Majestic, A Mighty Wind, Capote, Lady in the Water. Talked about him then. Uh-huh. For your consideration, Howl, Moonrise Kingdom, The Monuments Men, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Mascots, Isle of Dogs, Wormwood on Television, The Politician, Condor, and The French Dispatch. What do we think of Bob Balaban in this movie? He's good. He's enjoyable. As grounded and enjoyable as Truffaut. Yeah, I mean, he's a great counterpart to him because he's a little bit quirky. And a little bit like... I'm not, he's so, I'm not supposed to even be here today. Yeah, he's very much, I'm not supposed to be here. It's like, I'm the map guy, but you're paying me to speak French. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm not a a professional interpreter. My occupation is cartography. I'm a map maker. Can you translate French into English and English into French? Yes, yes. I explained to the team leader in Villa Hermosa. I'm just a little taken by surprise. And then breaks the whole thing open. Yeah, it's great. Balaban hadn't spoken French since high school. When Spielberg asked if he had, he answered in very bad French that he did not speak much. He hoped that someone who was listening to the audition would know that his French was not very good. Mm -hmm. Nah, he got the role anyway. So so he wound up having to audition in French Mm -hmm. and he took Berlitz classes and talked conversationally for hours with Truffaut to prepare for the role. Oh, that's great though. And then the two for the special edition, Balaban and Truffaut later filmed additional footage in 1980. Hmm. And he actually kept a diary of behind the scenes events, which was eventually published to tie in with the film's release. 
So it was originally just like a Close Encounters of the Third Kind diary, but I believe it is now called Spielberg Truffaut and Me. And uh, I don't know if it's still in print, but it's out there. And now we get to Arpons, because there's always fucking Arpons with him. Uh We have J. Patrick McNamara as the project leader of this whole team. This is Mr. Preston from Bill and Ted. Oh, okay. Roberts Blossom as a farmer out in town in Muncie. Mm -hmm. This would be Marley from Home Alone. The neighbor guy. That's our old man neighbor guy. It's weird seeing him here. Philip Dodds playing Jean-Claude, the ARP player, the big synthesizer guy. So this guy is not an actor. He was actually the guy set to install and manage the synthesizer for the film, Mm -hmm. which he also did for Logan's run the year before. But Steven liked the way he looked and played so much Mm -hmm. that he gave him the part of actually playing the notes on screen. Okay. And he has such good reactions that it works. We have Lance Henriksen playing Robert. You kind of barely see him in the background, but this is the guy who played Bishop in Aliens. Mm-hmm. He was also in The Right Stuff and The Terminator. Mm. He is a kind of sci-fi underground legend. We have George DiCenzo playing Major Benchley. He played Sam Baines, Lorraine's dad in Back to the Future mm-hmm. and was the original voice of Bo and Hordak in Shira, the 80s version. His character is named for Peter Benchley, the writer of Jaws, who Spielberg considered a consummate skeptic. We have Joseph Summer playing Larry Butler. This is the boss and CEO of the law firm in The Mighty Ducks. Okay. Carl Weathers as a military policeman. Yep. So weird. It, it is a little strange. We have J. Allen Hynek as the guy who we see smoking a pipe at the landing site. This is the legendary UFO researcher who coined the term Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So he is making an appearance in the film. We have Howard K. Smith playing the newsman during the Devil's Tower report. He's appeared as himself in a handful of films. They wanted Walter Cronkite, but CBS refused to let Cronkite do the role. Okay. So instead, Smith Smith got it. But the report was filmed before Smith was brought on to take the role. So when the reporter at Devil's Tower ends his report with, quote, order your steak well done, Walter, unquote, Mm. because they thought it was going to be Walter Cronkite. As well, Neary has the line, you think I investigate every Walter Cronkite story there is, and that is definitely a reference to Cronkite Mm. intended to be in the film. And finally, playing Toby Neary, one of Roy's sons, is Justin Dreyfus, Richard's little nephew. No. Richard's father also had a role for quite some time in the film, but he was cut out from the final cut. Now we talk about our special visual effects, and this is where we get to Douglas Trumbull. Okay. Again, the best part of this movie. Yes. (laughs) Hands down. So special effects were part of upwards of 200 shots in this film. Some shots contained 18 separate visual elements with dozens of matte paintings and animation. Spielberg had no firsthand knowledge of how any of this worked. And fair, that's not what he trained for. It's not what he does. But he was completely dependent on Trumbull for all of those effects. So in a lot of ways, this movie is a straight collaboration between those two. Mm -hmm. He did look at early CGI effects, which were in their very first stage of development. But he realized none of it could be used for what they were trying to do. It just wasn't, it didn't have any of the capabilities they needed. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they filmed all of the effects in 70 millimeter film and then shot live action shots with that same grain. The issue that they kept having was that special effects shots would get done in this wide 
pan of lens, mm-hmm. and then they'd shoot the film in 35 millimeter. And when you matched up the grains, the audience would instinctively know when the special effect was coming because yeah. the film grain would change. change. Instead, they matched it. Mm. And by doing that, all of the effects in this movie look so much smoother yes. than they would in any other time. It also gave him a wider audio spectrum to be able to do stuff in stereo and different things like that. But it, it just it gave it that seamless feeling. And they were trying to test the limits of what you could do with film. Spielberg, for his part, had to film all of the sequences without any knowledge of what Trumbull was going to do to finish them. So all of the live action stuff was set up after set up after set up. They had no idea what the final product was going to be. Trumbull had to complete them in post-production months later. And Spielberg found it a much tougher challenge. Jaws, everything was immediate. They had to solve it on the fly. But this unknown created a much more tense atmosphere. Trumbull gave Spielberg credit for having patience and not panicking throughout the entire production Mm -hmm. because a lot of other people got super testy while they were trying to figure this all out. But Spielberg, for his credit, was just like, no, it's okay. Let's get it figured out and let's do it right. They used an electronic motion control system to record and program camera movements with duplicate effects. So it would time the shots the exact same way for the special effects shots and the film sequence. The system was accurate down to one ten thousandth of a second. Wow. To get the cloud effects from the sky, they filled a tank half full of salt water and then fresh water on top of it. They injected paint, which would billow through the fresh water, but settle on top of the salt water. Mm. And what you get is the bubbling cloud. Yeah, that's cool. The UFO miniatures were filmed in a dark smoke-filled room, giving them a halo effect. The beams they shoot out get more prominent from that. Some of the illumination from the ship came from Christmas lights on the back of a metal plate behind tiny alien figures. Cute. And then the silhouette that they created was able to be composited with the real life actors. Cool. Trumbull and Spielberg did have an idea to have the UFOs look like brand logos familiar to humans. So they would look like the McDonald's arches or Chevron. That way it would seem less threatening to humans. They scrapped that. Thank God. That's bad. That would, that feels so men in black. It's not right for this movie at all. Not for the tone of this film, no. But if you look at the mothership, there's a lot of fun items because FFX needed a ton of little tiny details to make it pop. So on the mothership, there is an upside down Mm R2-D2. There is a shark referencing Jaws, a mailbox, a cemetery, and some of the model airplanes that were ostensibly abducted from the alien ship. And the mothership is now located in an annex of the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Okay. But during filming, they actually locked it in Steven's garage to avoid it from getting caught by paparazzi or media. Oh, sure. <laughs> they did so much effects work for this goddamn movie. Sure, because that, like, that's how you, you have to sell this film. Like, look at The Matrix. If the, if the effects don't work, the film doesn't work. Yep. The effects sell everything that's happening. Yes. So the effects are where you have to put all your money and all your time and all your energy. And they're amazing. And like we said, most of the stars, trees, hills, roads, all that stuff in this movie, added in post-production. Love it. Now we get to awards. Oh, geez. And we get to one of two Academy Awards, but also leads us on a saga for which I will say, Julia Phillips should probably not be a producer in Hollywood. So it won Best Cinematography. Okay. Vilmos Zygmunt, who did The Deer Hunter as well, had worked on Sugarland Express, but it passed on Jaws. Okay. He was super excited. 
but found Steven a lot more terse, a lot more commanding for this film. Mm -hmm. Didn't want to discuss, which makes a lot of fucking sense. Yep. It's like, we got effects to get done. But Zygmunt knew this was a hit. He's mm -hmm. like, the mistakes we made were not mistakes, really. Mm -hmm. It was because we were trying to do shit nobody done. Sure. He got the blame for a lot of that, though, mm -hmm. by producer Julia Phillips. Okay. And she tried to get him fired multiple times. Mm. When he insisted he needed a full day to light the giant landing set, Phillips tried to fire him, which is like, what? This is big as a football field. This is the scene that sells your movie. Yeah. Fuck off. He refused to give in. Trumbull and Spielberg both backed him, knowing the lighting in this filming, in the live in action, scene has, has to, to be good. Yeah, because we can't match the effects after. We can't we can't skimp here. This is a non-negotiable. When the extraterrestrials appear, he overexposed the film to diffuse the look. It it was sure. it was a, like just a nice eerie look, but sure. also obscured the fact that they're in rubber fucking suits. Yeah, no, it's so you can't really tell what you're looking at. That's the whole point. Julia Phillips assumed he made a mistake. Yep. Ordered him to redo it. So, he processed it normally. They looked terrible. Yep. They were plainly visible. She then claimed he botched it. On purpose. Well, no, just that he botched the filming originally. Sure. And it looked awful and ordered him to go fix it. Sigmund flabbergasted, reprocessed it the original way he intended. And when they showed it at dailies the next day, everything was fine. Mm -hmm. After two months of shooting, executives and backers showed up on set and she tried to fire him again. <laughs> so she just had a vendetta against this dude. As I said, she had a massive cocaine habit at the time, apparently. And she's written about this in a book. Like, she, I think, has admitted she, to this. She's admitted to this being an issue. Yes. All right. They floated some replacement options, like John A. Alonzo, who we saw in Harold and Maude, Laszlo Kovacs, who did Easy Rider, Ernest Laszlo, who did Inherit the Wind and Judgment at Nuremberg. All three of those guys were friends of Sigmund and said, if he can't do it, nobody can. We, don't, we can't do this. <laughs> nobody no. else is going to be able to do this any better. But Phillips finally got her wish. So Spielberg supported him throughout the entire landing sequence. But once primary filming finished in Alabama, Spielberg asked him not to shoot additional footage. So he made 90% of the movie. But there are a lot of additional sequences, like all the stuff in India and the desert and all of that stuff was done by a few different cinematographers. So in total, including the special edition. There are 11 cinematographers for this film. <laughs> That's insane. Eventually, Phillips was forced off of this picture by Columbia during post-production. Good. Because of shit like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Zygmunt got his fucking Oscar. So mm -hmm. like... Here's an Oscar for your troubles. <laughs> they also won a special achievement for sound effects editing. Okay. Which I get. Yeah. It was nominated for a lot more. Okay. Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Melinda Dillon. Best Director for Steven. I do get that. Big achievement. I, I, I get it. I do. And he didn't win. He just got nominated. I get it. Best Art Direction. Best Sound. Best Film Editing. Best Visual Effects. It didn't win. Star Wars. Star Wars. Of course. Star okay, Wars. Okay, yeah. Star Wars typically wins when it's in a category. I forgot Tip that. I forget that. Typically. And Best Original Score. I'm sure. Did it win score? No. What, did it lose to Star Wars? Did John Williams lose to John Williams? If he didn't, I'm going to throw shit. Because that's the best scenario. <laughs> I'm, oh, I lost, but I won. Okay. So it lost supporting actress to Vanessa Redgrave and Julia. <laughs> uh, it lost I'm, art direction to Star Wars. Fair. 
It won cinematography. Mm-hmm. It lost directing to Woody Allen for Annie Hall, which, fair. I've never seen it, but even I know. Fair. It lost editing to Star Wars. Fair. It lost original score to Star Wars. John Williams. Yep. So John Williams lost to John Williams. Yes. That's my favorite thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I can just imagine John Williams being like, I'm happy and sad, but happy, I don't care. It lost sound to Star Wars. <laughs> it lost visual effects to Star Wars. And here's the other thing. You know so many of those people worked on both. So many people worked on both. So many people worked on both. And also, I, I think Steven was just like, Fuck yeah, buddy! No, it's it's yeah, it's, it's he was he was just, just excited for his dude. He's his, his bro. Yeah, those are bros. They're bros. But I was like, oh, why would he? Lo- oh, that's fucking right. <laughs> All right, let's talk about our score a little bit. Oh, okay. Williams was trying to convey a sense of awe and fascination and overwhelming happiness and excitement at the prospect of seeing aliens for the first time. Okay. I think he accomplishes that. Though he gets a little creepy with this score. He he gets very ominous. Which I kind of like. I think it's great because when we get the payoff of the aliens, it's such a like relief and wonder. There's no jaunty flutes. (laughs) The five note melody came about by chance. Williams was just trying out different permutations on the chromatic scale, and they liked it. Sure. The score was created before the film was edited. Spielberg actually edited the film to the score. Okay. And both he, both Spielberg and Williams think that the film became a lot more lyrical because of it, which I would- I agree with that last sequence. Yeah. That being true. There are certain sequences, too, where it's like, this feels very oddly musical. No. Uh, They chose the tuba for the voice of the mothership because of the difficulty of playing the instrument, adding a human characteristic to the aliens. Yep. You can hear the tone as a security code in Moonraker Uh and a cue line in the original Star Tours. Uh And also, the double LP soundtrack album had a bonus 45 that had a disco version of the communication tones. That instrumental got airplay. It charted at number 13 on the pop singles chart, despite not being an official single. So dumb. It has been included on subsequent releases, and there are tons of bootleg disco versions of the tones as well. The tones. Y'all smoke too much pot. That's what I've decided. Cocaine, Diana. Uh, It's cocaine. It's not just cocaine. Uh. Not just cocaine. All right, that finally gets us to trivia. In India, the crowd is chanting Ayare Aya, which translates into he has come in Hindi. For the scene where Barry says toys while he's looking at the UFO, Spielberg actually pulled out a toy car to get his reaction. The film is shown nightly at the Devil's Tower KOA campground, which might make it one of the most screened films ever made. Yeah, if they play it every single night. <laughs> That's awesome. Also, I would kill to see that movie on a big screen at Devil's Tower. Oh, in a KOA? Absolutely. That would be badass. Just like, I do want to go see Jaws in a pool. Like, I want to sit in a boat <laughs> in a pool. Man. I want to. I do. Even though I don't, I do. The air traffic controllers in the opening are actual air traffic controllers. And a lot of the federal agents and scientists in the auditorium sequences were also real agents and scientists. That scene in the auditorium also happened the day after an Elvis concert. In the scene where Neely appears to be weightless in his truck, to get the effect, they put the truck on a turntable and rotated it 360 degrees. 
So everything floating in the car was actually floating in the shot. Yeah, I could tell it was some, they had done something to that effect just because of how Dreyfus is, is responding. Yeah. You can tell, like, he's in the truck and they're doing something to the truck. So I was like, I don't know if they had just, like, lifted it up and they were dropping it or they were doing something to the truck with him in it. I know you don't like that scene, but I think it's so fucking cool. I don't. I just, it's a lack of restraint. I get it. The studio initially balked at the abduction of Barry by the aliens, thinking it would be way too terrifying. I get it. I get that concern. They requested Spielberg and co. film an alternate sequence where Jillian saved Barry. And they did, but when they saw the final product, they didn't add it in. I mean, I get that because one of the things that is very unclear is we don't know if they're benevolent or evil. Oh, yeah. And that scene, the way it's, it, it shows up, it just looks evil. It's terrifying. And, yeah, and that's where it gets freaky. Yeah. When Jillian sees the Devil's Tower in a motel, that wasn't in the original script. She was supposed to say shut off in her home. But Spielberg thought it would be better for Jillian to be traveling to somehow try to find Barry. He thought, look, this is a mom. She's trying to find her kid. So she's going to be traveling west. She doesn't know why, but she's traveling west because she thinks that's where she might find him. And they quickly put together that set to film that sequence. When Richard Dreyfuss hosted SNL in 1978, it included a skit where he reprised his role as Roy Neary encountering the Coneheads. The sketch was titled Cone Encounters of the Third Kind. The poster design became iconic when the film was hugely successful. The black and white image of a highway receding toward a horizon. It's been used so many fucking times since then. It took a little while to get the aliens right for the film. Originally, they thought they would use mimes mingling with the human technicians. The mimes would move in slow motion and then they would speed up the film so that the aliens looked like they were moving super quickly around the other people. Didn't look great. So then they considered using an orangutan on roller skates. I assume in some kind of costume. The orangutan got frightened the second its skates touched the ground and grabbed onto its caretaker every time. Couldn't do that. They thought about having the aliens fly on wires, with the mothership having its gravity field around it. That's why you get the line, quote, watch for dizziness and low gravity. However, you couldn't conceal the wires with the lighting, with the giant amounts of lighting they had on, on set. So they just have the one marionette that we see. Finally, they settled on a group of local 8 to 12 year old girls who were ballet dancers based on the fact that Spielberg thought they would have a more graceful look and movement than boys. So all of those little aliens are, and they've got like back behind the stage shots Mm -hmm. of the girls with like headbands on with their costumes without their helmets. Mm -hmm. And then it was just a a group of ballet dancers that they all had, that they just had walk out of the mothership. But when Lacombe communicates with the alien with the sign language, the rubber costume looked really terrible. So they used an animatronic puppet for that one sequence. That little alien puppet was nicknamed Puck. It was a marionette puppet that had an upper torso, head, and articulating features. Eight people operated the various mechanisms. And Spielberg was so happy with that puppet, he would play with it on set. The face, particularly, they loved. The fact that it smiled back at Lacombe. Truffaut was so enchanted that he went to the puppet every morning to greet because he's a delightful, ridiculous French dude. And Carrie Guffey was the reference point for Puck. Interesting. Stuntman Craigar Baxley was injured in the police chase with the UFOs. He was just supposed to skid around the turn and go over the embankment, but he overshot his landing when he was going too fast. Despite wearing a helmet, he had head injuries and was hospitalized for several days. Uh Uh-oh. That's not great. 
In the scene where Ronnie cuts out newspaper articles about the sightings, there's an article about Star Wars on the other side of the newspaper. Okay. During the evacuation at the train station in Wyoming, you can see the truck from Duel in the background. Okay. (laughs) He's just doing dumb in-references for the sake of it. Sure. Most of the battery-operated toys that come to life in Barry's bedroom are all objects seen later in the film. Jets, helicopters, police cars, etc. And finally, on Inside the Actor's Studio, James Lipton pointed out the connection between how the scientists communicate with aliens using music and Spielberg's own life. You see, Spielberg's mother was a musician, and Spielberg's father was an early computer scientist. Hmm. Spielberg had not even considered that when he was making the film, but it is an interesting connection. And that finally brings us to our rating of this movie. So... Do we do motherships? Do we do ARP synthesizers? I like motherships. Mm, yes. Motherships would be yes. better. This um, is my film. It is your film. I've seen this before. Oh, boy. I fell in love with, with this movie when I first saw it. Sure. And it is feast, but it is a mess. Yes. It's a messy feast. I'm still going to give it a three. I love the visuals of this movie. Mm. I love what we get to see, how we get to experience it, the performances. I just recognize that it's also very, very messy and deserves to be cleaned up in a much better way. Mm. Somebody could retell the story easily and just do it in a way that flows far better. Mm. But I do love it. I love it. The movie leaves you with just this like, wow, feeling, honestly, for Mm. me. And I can't get past that. So three. I hate it when we agree because I was going to give it a three as well. (laughs) Because the visuals are great. And the performances are great. And I like the idea, but the the writing is shit. Yeah. And like, I feel like Steven got lucky. And I, yeah, I, I don't think this is good because of him. <sighs> like, I think he has a good team around him. And so he got like, I feel like he got lucky. And so, like, <laughs> I feel like attributing this film to him is like obnoxious. Well, to be fair, I think he does his best to try to give credit where credit is due. He does now, but he's a dick. Well, so. yeah, I know. So it's a, it's, a, it's a three for me. Three motherships. Three motherships. Well, next time. <sighs> next time we're going to watch a film that's going to make us sad. It's, gonna, it's, it's, it's not going to be fun. That's for sure. We know that. We're watching The Color Purple. Yeah, this is a film that we should have watched. Well, we just should have watched. I feel like it's a movie that gets forgotten about. Mm-hmm. It definitely gets forgotten that Spielberg made it. Because everybody remembers it for mm-hmm. Oprah and Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, and those are two women that I spent so much of my childhood with, and I just, I hate that I haven't seen films that were so important to their career. And to be fair, Steven probably doesn't need to be the central focus of this movie. Of course not. (laughs) But I am curious to see what he brings to it, Mm -hmm. and what balance he tries to bring to the fact that he is a white male director making a movie focused on a black woman. Yeah. So... Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.